Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, this is Mark Trichel. This is a new intro to this podcast because I issued it earlier this week. This is a a, a new type of thing I'm going to be doing where I talk about this week in credit unions in the news. And I posted it and uh, I had someone from NCUA that listened to it and reached out and clarified, actually corrected something that I said. So I made two references to Chevron as it relates to two proposed regulations, the subordinated debt rule and the bylaw rule relative to member expulsion. And I was referring when you get, if, when you listen in uh, to why I didn't think NCUA could make changes to those proposals, and I linked that to Chevron. I was actually uh, incorrect in using the Chevron, which is a, a, a legal case, uh, as the reason they may or may not be able to make changes to those regulations and uh, was told and reminded that that's the principle of logical outgrowth. Um, Anyway, so uh, the principle of logical outgrowth would allow NCUA to make changes to a proposed rule, just as the word sounds, if those changes were logical outgrowth of that original proposal. So you couldn't drop something in that hadn't been discussed at all, but if it was a subtle nuance of that first proposal, uh, you could theoretically make changes to it. So when I make statements later in this that NCUA may not be able to make changes, it's actually possible that they could, depending on whether or not it would be logical outgrowth as opposed to Chevron. Um, and Chevron is, is the case that gives defense to agencies in writing rules when the language of the statute is ambiguous. So let's say something tied to field of membership, NCUA proposes a rule, finalizes a rule, and it falls into ambiguous, uh, which in my, uh, in my layman terms would be tie goes to the runner. If something's ambiguous, NCUA would have the ability to make those changes. Um, and also whether it was ambiguous, maybe if it was in the proposal or the final. Again, I'm not an attorney. I spent a lot of times with them at NCUA. Chevron always was in the back of my mind, and I was actually thinking about logical outgrowth. But uh, more importantly than that, it's kind of cool that uh, that uh, there's some some uh, people at NCUA who are listening to my podcast and took the time to point out that I should clarify that to my audience, which I wanted to do here. I'm hoping sometime down the road to get some folks at NCUA on the podcast that hopefully will be something you see coming in 2023. All right, that's it. Enough rambling by me. Let's get to the episode uh, this week in news in credit unions. Hey, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. This episode is called The Week in Credit Unions. A lot of things going on, a lot of newsletters that I've been reading, some directions that came out from NCUA, and I'm starting to do something new when there's a lot that hits the news. I'm going to come out with episodes that are titled just what I said, This Week in Credit Unions. There are some interesting comments from NAFQ, from NASCIS, and CUNA on some proposals that NCUA has. So let's jump right in. Today is Wednesday, the 7th. 
this isn't in the news yet, but tomorrow the NCAA board will come out with their board agenda and they have to have their budget on the agenda this year. And it's my understanding that they're pushing some other things that they may have been considering back into January. There might be a couple other things. Typically, sometimes they'll consider the net operating level as a briefing to the NCUA board. And I've talked to you here before about the the net operating level. The reality is where the numbers are at, you're not going to get a you're not going to be assessed a premium. That's good, and you're not going to get a dividend. They may most likely keep the net operating level at the same level that it's at right now. Would be my opinion on that. All right. So next up is something that caught my eye in American Baker and also in something that NAFQ sent out. And there's an article that says the CFPB seeks to limit banks' ability to collect on delinquent home equity lines of credits, also more commonly called HELOCs. The article says the CFPB is taking the position that banks cannot secure repayment on certain home equity lines of credit by pulling funds from their delinquent customers' checking accounts. And of course, in credit unions, that would be share draft accounts. The Bureau's argument in a court case filed by a customer of PNC Financial Services Group has implications for how the bank structures HELOCs, which are coming back into favor as interest rates rise. At issue is how HELOCs should be treated legally, given that they are open-ended credit lines similar to credit cards, but are exempt from some card-related rules. So I'm not an attorney. I don't know if the CFPB is right or wrong on this. My guess is that they are overreaching beyond what their scope is, but that's just my guess. There's a very good article out there from NAFQ. NAFQ sent out a compliance blog. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to his compliance blog, I encourage you to do it. There's a really interesting write-up. And if you read that, I think you'll get the sense that NAFQ believes that there's a little bit of overreach. This is just what the CFPB is merely suggesting. They say, since this is just an amicus brief, the CFPB is merely suggesting the court interpret regulatory language to include HELOCs accessed by a credit card accounts under this protection. Ultimately, at this stage, discretion is still left to the courts, absent some legal action. So there's more to come on this, but again, CFPB throwing their weight around once again. NCUA had two items on the top of their webpage. They're encouraging credit unions to fill out the diversity assessment, which it's not required to be filled out, but they want to gather the data by January 31st. So if you're planning on doing that, you should do that. And again, it's not required. The law established NCUA creating one, but it's not required in the law at this juncture that you do fill it out. They would appreciate it if you did, no doubt. All right. NCUA also came out with a letter to credit unions today on annual meetings, and they took away a little bit of reg flex, but they left in mostly quite a bit, quite a bit. So it's a, it's a good letter to credit unions all in all, but the letter to credit union is called an expiration of emergency exemption from certain in-person meeting requirements. The letters to all federal credit unions. So if you're state charter, this, this does not relate to you. And in summary, it says in March, 2020, And in November of 2020, and again last year, the NCUA issued three letters to federal credit unions providing flexibility during the pandemic related to annual meetings. In those letters, the NCUA recognized that the COVID-19 pandemic had created challenges for federal credit unions and their members. As a result, the NCUA provided federal credit unions with the flexibility to conduct their membership and board of director meetings completely virtual. This emergency exemption will expire 
December 31st. So that that makes it sound like you're not going to be able to do it, but mostly you will. So here's really where the rubber hits the road. Although virtual only member meetings will no longer be an option, the NCUA reminds federal credit unions that they may choose to hold hybrid meetings if that suits their needs. Hybrid meetings consist of a meeting held virtually in conjunction with an in-person component for members who wish or need to attend that way. While general quorum requirements still must be met for the hybrid meetings, federal credit unions may count attendees at both the virtual and in-person components toward those requirements. A hybrid meeting format could preserve federal credit union resources and reduce the effort required to hold meetings without disenfranchising those members for whom virtual attendance is difficult or impossible. Federal credit unions must also consider whether their current bylaws authorized hybrid meetings or whether bylaw changes will be necessary. Additionally, the NCUA Federal Credit Union bylaws permit federal credit unions boards to conduct virtual only meetings for all but one of their board meetings per calendar year. Further, if a quorum of the directors is physically present at the one required in-person meeting, then the remaining directors may attend that meeting virtually. Finally, the NCUA Federal Credit Union bylaws permit flexibility for distributing member notices. Specifically, the bylaws provide that notices for member meetings may be sent by electronic mail to members who have opted to receive statements and notices electronically. As such, a paper mailing is not required for all members, only those members who have not opted to receive electronic statements and notices. So they took a little bit away here, but they've, they've left quite a bit of flexibility you can you can do combination meetings of in person and virtual for both your board meetings and for the membership meeting and that is all well and good all right i also saw a good comment letter from nascus relative to ncua subordinated debt rule that proposed subordinated debt rule had some good things in it because it was going to grandfather some portions of the old for older capital was going to allow um, the older type secondary capital to have terms of 30 years. They were That was a shift from the current rule that only allowed that for the sub-debt that was put on the books starting in 2022. But Naskis pointed out that the regulatory burden for to getting the legal reviews that require the small credit unions to have an onerous level of documentation done because NCUA is saying that those those subordinated debt issuances are all securities, which is my understanding. They're very smart people in the credit union land who, who believe that that NCUA interpretation could be broadened and should be broadened. I believe if that's possible, which again, the people that are saying it to me are, are smart cookies, if you will. I'm pretty sure it could be done. And because of that, it should be done because the burden of those costs is basically going to prevent smaller credit unions from getting subordinated debt. And back in the day, that's where most of the subordinated debt or secondary capital landed. I know that this is something that that the trade groups for small credit unions, inclusive, are very interested in things being changed here. The reality and the problem is that wasn't in the proposal. So that's not going to come when this is finalized because under the Chevron rules, you can only make a final rule of something that was proposed. So it's good though that it's being brought up by trade groups and NASCAS in particular here because eventually I think NCUA will sway on that. It might not be with this board, but keep keep hitting that hammer. And eventually I believe there may be some changes there. All right. And CU Collaborate also has a very good newsletter. David Bauman issued an article titled Marijuana Banking and NCUA Vendor Authority Left Out of the Defense Bill. 
There's reference to the fact that the changes that NCUA was looking to get for the central liquidity facility are also not in the bill, but that there may be a bill introduced by Senators Alex Padilla and Kevin Kramer this week that introduced separate legislation, which would extend those provisions. CU Collaborate is indicating it's not clear whether the bill will be considered this year. My guess is that it likely won't. It's too bad that those CLF expanded authorities, which I've talked about here in another podcast. I would, If you're interested in the CLF, I would listen to that podcast because I interviewed the former vice president of the CLF, Steve Farr, who's also a member of my team. But I think credit unions will be happy that the vendor authority has fallen out. And I think it's disappointing that the marijuana banking has fallen out. The feds need to step up and resolve the issues and allow improved safety by making it very clear that it's allowed in federal credit unions. But looks like that's going to have to happen another day. Also, NAFQ and CUNA have written NCUA about the NCUA member expulsion rules being too onerous. And again, there's a podcast I did on that proposed rule. This falls into the problem with Chevron as well. NAFQ and CUNA are saying that the rule should be made less onerous. Uh, It's my recollection that the way the proposal was written, NCUA has kind of fenced themselves in on on what they were proposing. I'm not going to debate here whether or not it is too restrictive or not restrictive, but your trade groups groups are doing a good job trying to water that down uh, at the behest of their credit unions. And we'll have to see where NCUA goes with that. I believe they'd have to repropose a rule if they wanted to make any changes that CUNA and NAFQ are recommending. All right. So that gets me to another hot topic. And the rest of this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about, well, first I want to talk about an article that is all over the place, but it's Blackstone limits investor withdrawals from 145 billion REIT real estate investment trust as economic concerns grow. So I've got two podcasts out there on liquidity where I interviewed Todd Miller, former NCUA regional capital market specialist of my team about growing liquidity concerns and the fact that credit unions are having issues with that. I've got Uh, conversations with potential clients and current clients where they're having some challenges relative to this and having some examination issues tied to it. Uh, And here we are, uh, one of the the biggest names in uh, investing, Blackstone is limiting withdrawals because people are trying to get access to their money. I'm not relating this to the crypto illiquidity situation, but it's just reminding me of 08 and 09 when you'd hear liquidity, liquidity issues here, liquidity issues there. And that led to the the TARP bill to put a lot of funding into the the public systems so as to prevent long-term liquidity challenges. I'm not saying that's where it's going, but I'm starting to hear chatter in so many different directions on liquidity that I think it will continue to be a huge issue in 2023, which gets me to the final topic I want to talk about here in this podcast. And it relates to the things going on with FTX and crypto. I was chatting with a couple of credit union folks this week, and none of, neither I or nor they are interested in that whole arena. But it's, you know, it's kind of like driving by a, a a car crash. You go slow, and you want to see if anybody's hurt, and you you glance at it, even though you might not want to glance at it. So I find myself reading things on FTX and crypto that they tend to pull me in. By the way, also in that regard, if you are interested in reading and learning about what's going on at FTX. There was a great 
podcast on a Bloomberg podcast called Odd Lots. And it was issued on Monday. The podcast episode is called Brad DeLong on the FTX Collapse and the South Sea Bubble. So they compare it to other collapses of bubbles in hundreds of years ago. And it was pretty eerie just hearing the hearing the comparison of that to what's going on on FTX and the cascading impacting that it's having on in, in many different interrelated crypto type organizations, which gets me to an article. There's a gentleman that writes for Bloomberg. Actually, he used to have a newsletter that I subscribe to. His name is Edward Harrison, and he has a newsletter called The Every- Everything Risk. And I, I want to read a couple paragraphs here because to me, it's um, it's just spot on. So he says, the implosion of crypto exchange FTX is not just an Enron moment, one particular company collapsing under the weight of fraud. It is crypto's layman moment. The interconnectedness of FTX's crypto platform, the use of leverage, by the way, that's key, and the lack of a lender of last resort ensure that the fallout will be widespread and lasting. Here's what the end game could look like. All right, I'm going to jump down to a paragraph about the lender of last resort because it's spot on it, as a former regulator at NCUA who provides deposit insurance so that there won't be runs, right? This kind of hit home with me. So a couple paragraphs here. No lender of last resort means cascading failure. Here's the thing. We we now know FTX couldn't rescue BlockFi because they were in trouble themselves. FTX has loaned out customer funds in non-arms length transactions to the affiliated Alameda Research, which lost that money, bankrupting itself and FTX in the process. So now BlockFi has also applied for bankruptcy protection. The cascade of defaults and bankruptcies will continue until the threat of counterparty risk is negligible. Sounds a lot like what could have happened if the feds hadn't intervened after Lehman. By the way, that was 08 and 09, which was what I was referring to about liquidity challenges in that time frame in the Great Recession. When there's no lender of last resort, you have to basically let it all burn out the way it did in the U.S. in the days before there was a Federal Reserve. Read that again. When there is no lender of last resort, you have to basically let it burn out the way it did in the U.S. in the days before there was a Federal Reserve. That's why we had the Panic of 1837, the Panic of 1857, the Panic of 1873, the Panic of 1893, and the panic of 1907. All of these 19th and early 20th century financial crises ended with depressions and galvanized Congress to create the Fed. Think of crypto as being in the same position today, but with extra uncertainty surrounding the value of the collateral, since few crypto assets spin off any cash flows. There is nothing stopping many of these assets from going to zero. All right, so... You know, I've I've chatted a little bit about crypto here today. It's just a reminder of the importance of the insurance system, importance of the Federal Reserve, FDIC, NCUA, and we have this alternative money source of crypto that everybody thought was going to be the future, and it's 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 getting kicked around pretty good here right now. 
I know that you need to separate this from blockchain and you need to separate this from different ways this technology potentially can be used for credit unions to attract young members, et cetera. I'll have some podcasts on some folks that are very supportive of the other side of this equation, but it's a train wreck. It's interesting to watch. There's a lot of interesting information out there on this. I hope you enjoyed this episode that you'll listen again soon. And this is Mark Trichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com. 